Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in 21 and go all the way to 32. Um, as I mentioned, I want, to talk about a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about marriage today, and really in the context of uh, one of our stated values that we talk about quite a bit around here in the church, which is intentional relationships and not passive familiarity. You may see this kind of slogan posted all around the church in different online forums and things like that, but that is who we are. This is one of our highest stated values, that we want to be a church that is about intentional relationships and not passive familiarity. In other words, our hope and prayer is that when you come to Dallas Bible Church, that you're not just slipping in and slipping out, that you're not unknown or unseen or anything like that, that there's an intentionality that comes in the context of relationships, and it's an intentionality that's moving somewhere as we are growing as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a lot of times, we apply that in the context of groups and in discipleship, but we are also recognizing that this is the thing that requires intentionality in the context of marriage. And the reality is, is we have been connecting with people in a very difficult year when there's not a whole lot of proximity, relational proximity going on. One of the things elders have been seeing and discerning and hearing from the church, not just on a national perspective, but here locally, is just how much marriages are under fire, uh, how much tension there is in the home today. This is one of the things that has been really, really hard and sad to hear, just how much uh, difficulty there is in the home. We want to speak to that uh, quite a bit today. And we recognize that it's not just an isolation. We're going to be speaking about groups in isolation, to singles specifically this next week. Uh, but to this morning, we want to speak about it in terms of marriage. Now, before we get into that, I want to acknowledge that there's a tension when it comes to preaching or speaking about something such as biblical marriage. On the one hand, there's a lot of us coming to a, a message like this, and you're kind of going, yeah, preach it, brother. This, like, this is, like, I'm totally into this thing. Like, love is my thing. I love love. I love relationships. I love the whole deal. Like, this is my jam. Like, the, the bachelor, the bachelorette, like, that's the thing that I've got on repeat all the time, uh, even though that's not really, really, but, you know, there's, but you're kind of going, hey, I love the, the hope of this thing. Um, I, I like the Hallmark Channel in the summertime even. It's like, like that is my jam. And then others come into a message like this and you're kind of going, okay, uh, yeah, not so much. And there's a number of different reasons for that, but some of it is, hey, you may be in the middle of one right now that is in the middle of all of that tension. And you're kind of going, okay, yeah, yeah, all this optimism, all this joy, all this, um, all this, this hope and stuff like that, that's not how it's played out for me. For others, it may be saying, hey, you know what, I'm on the back end of marriage and towards the, I'm towards the end, I'm on the back end of that thing and it's not really where I am right now, it's not in my immediate future. Others are sitting there kind of going, hey, if I have one more family member or church or church member or something come to me and, 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 and assume that my life and dignity or my purpose is somehow aligned with whether or not I'm able to say I do, I'm gonna throw up in my mouth. And some of you are there, you're kind of going like, if there's anyone else that insinuates my life hasn't begun because I haven't said I do yet, like I'm going to punch somebody. And we know that's nonsense, right? We know Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He simply says, he says, uh, uh, it may actually be better for you to remain single so that you can be single-minded in your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in the middle of like as glorious and grand and as a beautiful thing as marriage can be, right? He's just acknowledging right here, there is a beauty to this time and your life does not begin when you say, I do. You have purpose, you have value, you have significance exactly as you are. You can live your life to the praise and to the glory of his, main, of, of his name, no matter where you are. And the reason, again, we know that this is not nonsense is because Paul actually backed this up with his own life. With an intentional decision, I'm not going to get married. And he went on an intentional singleness to become the most fruitful believer we've ever seen in the history of the world. 
And, and the reason we know it's not just Paul is because you can look around here too and know friends or, or people in your life and you can say, hey, they made a decision to remain intentionally single and in that singleness, they are devoting their time and attention to the purposes of God and they are praising him in ways like nothing I've ever seen. I'm thinking of people like Abe Caravilla, Joanne Humble, a great hero of the faith, somebody I admire tremendously. I'm thinking of uh, Sarah Strand, Valerie Wynn, young singles around here. I used to do singles ministry back in the day who recognized the purpose and the beauty of this time in life and said, you know what? My life doesn't begin then. It's going on right now. I'm serving him wholeheartedly with everything that I have, and I'm giving my life to him. And they're doing it in such a way that is absolutely beautiful, but nevertheless, We recognize that a conversation like this can hijack the message and somehow get into this thing makes you believe, hey, my life doesn't begin until I say the words I do. And so that is a baggage. It's a thing that we bring into this conversation. And another one simply may be that, you know what, marriage, in my experience, it's never really gone well. Like That's the thing that I grew up, like my home growing up, and that may be where you're saying, like with my parents, I never saw it done well. It wasn't a beautiful thing for me. It was a really difficult, like it was a really messy thing, and I've only ever seen it gone that way. And it may creep into a lot of pessimism around the subject matter today. A little while ago, back in, um, a little while ago, Barna did a study with young adults to talk about, uh, to really understand their perception of marriage and divorce today, because they noticed that it's changing quite a bit. But uh, I want you to notice the pessimism toward marriage and love that's permanent, or that really that is uh, very prominent today. Here's what it says. It says, there no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an unavoidable rite of passage. Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last, but they're not particularly optimistic about that possibility. There's also evidence that many young people are moving toward embracing the idea of a serial marriage in which a person gets married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. But church, like this is how many of us around us culturally, maybe even within our church, but this is how many of us are thinking about marriage today. It's not necessarily till death do us part or anything like that. It's kind of like until I become unhappy and then my life stage changes and I'm going to grab onto somebody else at this particular point in time because marriage is simply all about my happiness. And so like here's the irony of what we kind of learn from the people that are polled. They're, they're, they're saying out loud I want my first marriage to last. Uh, like that's what they're saying. Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last. We all want that marriage to last. We all come to the pulpit that day. We come down the altar, down that aisle, expecting and hoping this is going to be happily ever after, do we not? This is going to be, like, this is going to be that fate, that, that, that love that's going to last for a lifetime. There's going to be joy and happiness, contentment, you complete me kind of a love. And we, like, we all want that kind of a love. It's why the movie The Notebook was so popular, is it not? I've joked about this forever. One of the more defining days in my, of, of my life, June 25th, 2004. I'm the only male in the movie theater that day, probably. Right? Like, we, we wouldn't love it. It's like the day that that movie came out. I'm not kidding you. Every seat's filled. And I remember the movie gets, gets done, and I stand up to walk out. And I'm like, no one else is getting up. And like all of a sudden, like five seconds later, People burst into tears, and you hear, like, in unison, do you love me like that? And, like, I, I, I'm not kidding, like, that movie. And, like, we, we want to be loved like that. We want to believe that this is a marriage, that there's a relationship, that there's someone that I can come together with, and it's going to last for a lifetime. And we understand, like, men, it's not just the ladies, right? Like, like, you have the exact same desires, too. But it didn't come out in the movie Notebook. It was more 
Braveheart or something like that. Remember this? Like, I remember watching Braveheart, and I remember like, yeah, you mess with her, I, I will kill you, son. Like, I, will get, like, I remember watching, I'm like, yeah, you do that to my wife, I, yeah, gonna come after you like that, right? And so, but we want that. It's a longing inside of our heart that, that we want to be loved, we want it to last for a lifetime, to be joyful and, and, and happy uh, for, the long, for the long term. The problem is that it doesn't just happen. The problem is Hollywood has lied at some point and said, you know what, you don't just hope to find that right person who completes you. You don't just hope that you fall into it. It's not just a thing that you ethereally kind of fall in and out of. It's not just a feeling that you feel or anything like that. It's something that requires intentionality. I love the way Andy Stanley talks about this. He says, he says, falling in love is the easy part. All that requires is a pulse. And we know that's true, right? Like you fell in love like in second grade with your teacher, right? I, mean, I remember thinking like in third grade, I was going to marry Bridget Clark. That was the one, right? And it didn't happen amazingly, right? But, but like falling in love is the easy part. All that requires is a pulse. Staying in love, he says. One person, death do you part. Thriving in that love for a lifetime. That requires intentionality. And so I want to jump into this passage right here because Paul's going to speak specifically to that intentionality. And, uh, and, and, uh, and kind of like Chip talked about last week, the things that he talks about right here, the, the, the cool part about it is it's not only going to be unique to marriages. So it doesn't matter if you're on the back end or the front end, whether you're in the middle of it or not, the principles that he talks about here are going to meet you wherever you may be and, and allow you to love and submit and give and serve in all these different ways in a way that's going to be pleasing and glorifying to him. And so I want to jump into this morning, Ephesians chapter 5, again, verse 21. And if you're not familiar with this letter, we haven't been in it in a long time, uh, but this is a letter, right? It's not just a book. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to a church in Ephesus, somewhere around 62 AD. He's writing it from Rome in the middle of prison, which is what he does. He's in prison and he's persecuted and like his life is going to crud and he decides to write a message and encouraging a church. But this is what he's doing right here. And the theme that he uses to really, that really permeates this entire message is a theme of oneness. It's the whole message of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's that in Christ, you and I have been made one. We've been made one through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's chapter 2 when he says, He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, meaning Jews and Gentiles. He broke down the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, this passage I love to quote all the time. But he's saying, like, he is our peace. He's brought Jews and Gentiles together into one brand new family. He repeats it in chapter 4, again, continuous theme throughout the entire letter. But he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? There is one body, he says. There's one spirit, just as you've been called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But this entire letter, understand that the massive theme that ties it all together is oneness. Because of what we have in Jesus Christ. And so he gets to chapter 5, and all he's doing is taking this theme of oneness, and he's applying it right now into the context of marriage. And he's saying, here's how to achieve oneness. Here's how to achieve unity. Here's how to achieve intimacy and this oneness in the context of marriage. And so church, I just want to let you know, like, this is the thing that I've been praying for you and for me and for our country and I would, I, would, I would implore you to join me this year in praying for oneness. That, that we would have this unity which the gospel shows us that he came to bring among all believers all around the world, all around the country. Praying this, that God would bring oneness not only to our country, to the big C church in general, to the little C church here at Dallas Bible and all around this city and nation. 
but also to the context of your marriage, that you would experience this oneness today. And so here's what he says. Here's how, to, how, he, how he begins the whole thing in verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Jesus Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, he says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one's ever hated their body, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's that oneness that has been prevalent throughout the entire letter. The two will, they will leave the father and mother, and they will come together and be united together in one flesh. And then he says something really, really interesting here. He says this. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church in the middle of all this imagery. In other words, what he's saying right here is in the, in the middle of this great talk about oneness and marriage, like you've got to understand, understand that your marriage is about more than just your own personal happiness. It's about more than just your own fulfillment. It's about more than just kids or whatever that may be. It has more than just uh, having a home, having a community or anything like that. Like your marriage is about so much more than that. It's about communicating the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way that God left heaven to come and to love you and me through the way that you love one another. And he's saying that there's a bigger picture in mind when you said, I do. And to have this picture in mind, to understand that your relationship that God has brought you together in, in the covenant of this marriage, it has a greater purpose. And it is to, to mimic or to illustrate the picture of God's love for us, his bride, the church, when he came and he laid down his life for her. And so under the context, the banner of this, hey, my, my marriage is more than all these other great things. It is a picture of the gospel. He begins and he says this. He says, submit to one another. And then he gets really specific with two words that are going to kind of fall underneath that banner, love and submit again. But the whole thing begins in verse 21 with this mutual call of submission toward one another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's made you one. Now continue to go and walk in that oneness through a posture of humility and submission where both parties are mutually elevating the other person above themselves. That's what submission means. It's the Greek word is hupotasso right here, which literally means to yield uh, or to put yourself underneath another person to obey. And so what I want you to notice right here, what I think is really fascinating is that what Paul's doing is he's taking these concepts right here that are already common to all believers as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There's nothing initially unique about what he's telling us to do right here in verse 21. These are things that are repeated over and over again. And as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, it's not unique to men or it's not necessarily unique to women in the sense that uh, it's not only men that are supposed to love the other, right? Women should probably love their spouse. That'd be a pretty good thing. And, and so um, <laughs> I love the movie Karate Kid. How many of you guys grew up with this? You kind of like, I, I still think, I, I think it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, absolutely love it. And I love that it's kind of being resurrected a little bit today. But if you remember a little, little bit of the plot line, Daniel moves to a brand new city. He's getting bullied all over the place until he wants to learn karate. And remember this, he goes to Miyagi and he says, hey, Mr. Miyagi, I need, I need to learn karate. And uh, Miyagi agrees to this thing. 
And then he comes and, uh, and he says, okay, I'm going to teach you karate, essentially. But you remember how the whole thing, he goes, he's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to paint the fence. And he's like, I want you to wax the car. And I want you to sand the floor. And I want you to paint the house and all these different kinds of things. And like for weeks and weeks and weeks, he's just doing chores and he's getting all frustrated and he's getting really upset about the entire thing until all of a sudden it clicks and he remembers Miyagi kind of helps him connect the dots and says, hey, I've been teaching you karate all along. And it's the exact same thing that Paul's doing right here. He's saying, you know how to be one in marriage. Like you know how to have this thriving, healthy marriage that you all long for. I've been teaching it to you forever. Like love isn't unique to the marital relationship. It's unique to be, it's, or it's, it's part of following the Lord Jesus Christ. John 13, 34, which Chip talked about last week. Jesus is gonna say, a new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Not as the world defines love, not as some sort of a feeling that you may or may not have, but I want you to love one another as I have actually loved you, right? It's not gender specific. It's not whether or not you're single or married. Like all believers, as followers of Christ, you're to love the other person. Submission, same thing. He's going to say this in James. He's going to say, there is a wisdom from heaven that is first of all pure, then it's peace-loving, then it's considerate, and then it's submissive, full of mercy, full of good fruit, it's impartial and it's sincere. It's not written only to women. It's not written only to men. It's not just to singles. It's not just to married. It's just to people that are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, taking concepts that are following him, and he's applying it now to the context of marriage. And so he repeats them right here, not because they are the only things that we are supposed to focus on or the only things we're supposed to do in a marriage, as if love were unique to women and submission, or vice versa, love were unique to men and, and submission only to women right here. He repeats them simply because love and submission is not natural in the human heart, and it is not natural in a biblical marriage. Right? Like back in 1999, Gallup poll did a survey. Um, they, they studied a bunch of people, and they asked this question. They said, what are your ideas about the concept of submission? 65% of people hated the idea of submission. I mean, you think about it. Like, these are not natural things into our heart. We don't naturally want to submit. We don't like submission. It never feels good. It's often abused, right? We, we don't like some of these concepts. 65% said, hey, I hate the idea of submission. Um, everyone else agreed, hey, husbands should love their wives. The rest of these admonitions right here. 69% of people polled strongly disagreed that a wife should lovingly submit to her husband. And only, the, the number only changed to 60% when they were reminded, hey, this is in the Bible. It's actually a quote from uh, Colossians and Ephesians and stuff like that. Didn't really matter a whole lot. There's something offensive about the word submit. And quite honestly, we, we get it to some degree, don't we? I mean, we've seen the number of ways that it's abused. We've seen how this plays out. And we know the ne negative connotations that are often associated with a word like this. I mean, if, if you like mixed martial arts or ultimate war, you know, fighter or anything like that. Like submission is what you do just before you're about to die, right? Dude's got his, his hands around your neck and, and you tap out and you submit in order to admit that you've been defeated. Right? That, that, that's not a, a picture that you, that you want to associate much with a healthy, thriving marriage. It's not you don't come to before the Lord that day and you're just thinking about tapping out or something like that. Uh, in war, it's waving up a flag. It's a white flag. It's saying, hey, I, I surrender and I give up. I remember a little while ago, I was talking with a good friend of mine who is a female um, and serving as a missionary in the Middle East. And she's in this culture where everything is covered head to toe. Um, she was raised in Dallas, and uh, she's in a culture, everything's covered head to toe. She's not allowed to walk down the street and make eye contact with another man. 
If she does, the, the, the results are they're, they're justified in, in that culture. She's telling me the story about one of her friends who was assaulted by another person. And uh, she ended up going to jail while he's let off scot-free for the crime of adultery. Right? We, 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 the point is we, we know how often words like this are often um, abused. We know how bad these things can go sideways. And in fact, it's believers who, if you know the word of God, it should not be surprising that it's often going to play out that way. Genesis chapter 3, God tells us this is how it's often going to play out. This is one of the consequences. This is one of the, the curses of sin. And we read about it in chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. This is the scene where sin comes into the picture, and God is speaking to Adam and Eve, and he's telling them the curse of sin, and he's saying, hey, this is how things are going to play out here. And so he, he says this in Genesis chapter 3. He, he, he's describing to them what's going to happen. And he says, To the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to your children, which we see. Like that happens. Ladies, if you've had a child, it does not, uh, seems painful, right? <laughs> he continues and he says, Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And the word that he uses right there is a, is a Hebrew word, teshukatek, which literally means a strong desire. So it's not just, hey, I, I want you and I, I want to be in this loving relationship or something. It's a strong desire. Um, oftentimes it is combined with a, a strong controlling, uh, manipula- a strong controlling desire to usurp. And so what he's painting right here is this picture of, hey, there's going to be this desire to be one in, uni- in, in marriage, but now because sin has entered into the picture, there's going to be a tension in the home, naturally speaking, apart from the common grace of the Lord Jesus Christ or apart from the common grace of God in this world, like there's going to be a natural propensity because of the curse of sin to have this tension inside of the home. And so what we're seeing right here, you've got to understand when it comes to the curse of sin, nothing about the curse is prescriptive. This is not the ideal picture of what we run after, and we say this is the ideal. We're not men. We're not running towards a harder, you know, crops or anything like that. This is descriptive of the impact of sin on the world. And so it's not prescriptive of how it should be, but it's absolutely descriptive of how this will play out over the course of time. And so you hear these words, and you see how it plays out. I mean, uh, back in the first century, there was a widely cited rabbinic saying uh, around the time of Christ, there was a threefold prayer that said this, praise be to God, he hasn't created me a Gentile. This is a prayer by rabbis in the first century. Praise be to God, he hasn't created me a Gentile. Praise be to God, he hasn't created me a woman. Praise be to God, he hasn't created me an ignoramus. All right, this is the way that they were viewed oftentimes in the first century. And we see this play out again in the biblical narrative. It just happens. Genesis chapter 20. Abraham hands over his wife to Abimelech like she's nothing. Father Abraham, not sinless Jesus. Father Abraham hands over his wife to Abimelech like she's absolutely nothing. Judges 19. There's a dad who hands over his young daughter to an angry, lustful mob because he doesn't want to let them get the young man who is staying with them at that time. It's a horrific, horrific picture. Even today, like 93% of all domestic violence cases that are reported, they're reported by women. If the stats are right, like somewhere around one in three adult women have experienced some form of domestic violence in their lifetime. One in four when it comes to extreme forms of violence by a partner. And so, yeah, point of the matter, churches, we have to understand, yes, 
These languages, these words, like it, 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 they often get abused. It's the reason why Paul's going to say in Colossians 3, husbands, love your wife. Don't be harsh with them. The reason he has to bring this little qualification is because there's a natural propensity to be harsh. There's a natural propensity here in this dynamic oftentimes where we could be at war with one another. And so he says, don't be harsh with them. Why? Because it's a reality in which much of us may, may live in. And so he says, don't be harsh with them. But here it is, church. Like This is why Paul is writing this to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5. Like none of these things are how it should be. They are descriptive of the way that they are. And all of it is why Paul writes this section to us today. He's sitting there going saying, hey, it does not have to play out that way. It doesn't have to be this way. Like there could be oneness in your marriage instead of competition. There could be oneness here instead of domination or control. There could be unity here. There could be beauty. There could be life being breathed into this thing instead of any of these things. You can recognize how sin is going to have a natural tugging upon your heart. You can repent from it right now. You can repent from it right, to, right today. You can lay it all at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can move toward oneness in your marriage or your future marriage when both of you come to this thing saying, hey, I am fixated upon Jesus, I am following him first and foremost, and I'm gonna have this attitude of mutual submission, which I also find in Christ. He is the model for this thing. It's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2 when he says, who, Jesus, who had this, who, who, uh, this attitude in yourself, which is the same as Jesus, he says, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider himself equal with God as something to be grasped or used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death upon a cross. Church, like that's what submission is. It is laying down your life for the flourishing of another, coming underneath someone else to lift them up for their long-term good. And so, ladies, when this is repeated in verse 22, it is not a demotion. It is not a slight to your worth. It is not a prescription for abuse or anything like that. It is a pathway toward oneness that is modeled by Jesus Christ, the one who has all the power and authority in the world, the one who is perfectly sinless in all of his ways, like the, the, the one who, who came in the fullness of his power, both fully God and fully man, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Holy Spirit, not in weakness, not in passivity, not as a second-class citizen, but in the fullness of his power. And he willingly chose to lay down his life for the flourishing of his bride, the church, and the long-term good of us all. Church, this is Jesus in the garden when he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Co-equal with the Father, but Father, I am submitting to you in the middle of this moment. I'm just coming to you in the middle of that place. That is submission. And what I want to say, church, like there is beauty in this word. And my hope is that we would be a church, we would be a people that are able to redeem words that have terrible applications culturally. This is a beautiful, beautiful word that God our Father saw fit to model for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful word that you and I can, 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 can play out in our marriage. Husbands and wives, wives again to your own husband right here. Like This is a beautiful word that we need to redeem. I do not want to give up this word. It is a biblical, beautiful word, and it is powerful, powerful, powerful. Even when it's a one-way application right here. This past week, I had a chance to do a wedding that was, uh, I absolutely loved it. I was talking with a couple immediately after the first service, and I was just reminded of this in the moment, but he was telling us our story, and 
There's only four of us doing this wedding at this time, and, and I loved his testimony. He just said, you know what? She began following the Lord Jesus. I wasn't there. She was leading the way. And she goes, you know, he goes, you know what? I just kept seeing what God was doing in her life, and I fell in love with her godliness. The way that she loved, the way that she served, the transformation that God was bringing into her life. He goes, I fell in love with that, and I started following Jesus too. And it was this beautiful picture of coming in and just the power of even when it's one way, when your spouse may not necessarily be there with you, it is absolutely powerful, the beauty of submission in a marriage. And what Paul's saying here is like, you know how powerful and beautiful it is even when it's one way? Can you imagine what it would be like when it's two ways? Can you imagine what it's like when, when marriages come and we focus on verse 21 also, and we say submit to one another, recognizing this is a common call for all believers. This is how we operate. Can you imagine what it would be like when two people come together and they're submitting one to another right here? How beautiful and how powerful of a picture that is actually gonna be. Here's the crazy thing about this, church. The exact same model of Philippians 2 that we just talked about right there that's a model for submission it's the same model that's given the headship and love as well. It's, it's the exact same thing we're talking about right here. Look, look at this. He's going to say in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as you would to the Lord. In other words, give fully of yourself to your own husband right here. Why? Because your husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. In other words, God has given husbands an added responsibility to steward this relationship well, which does not mean that wives are without responsibility, without leadership, without a voice, without any of those things, any of those extremes, but it does mean there's an added responsibility given to husbands right here, not to dictate, not to control, not to self-inflate, but to sacrificially lead with love in such a way that ensures her flourishing. And the reason we know that that's the picture, and we know that the reason we know that it's not any of the abuses that we see all around us today is because over and over and over again, Paul is pointing us to Jesus. This entire relationship is to paint the picture of a sacrificing God who laid down his life for the flourishing of his bride. And he keeps pointing us to Jesus over and over and over again. I mean, in verse 25, he's going to say, husbands, love your wives. In, in other words, like actively love her. Don't just feel love towards her. Don't just say you love her one time on the day of your wedding, uh, but like actively do the work of love. It's a verb. It's something that you do. It's something that's got substance behind her. It's not a one-time thing that you feel and you can check off the box and be like, yeah, 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 I love my wife. No, 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 no. Are you actively loving your wife? As Christ loved the church, that's the example that he gives right here. He is the example of what headship looks like in the marriage. It's not John Wayne, right? It's not your cultural hero that you look up to. It's not who we present as the ideal man. I think Time Magazine had Don Draper 10 years ago, the ideal man. It's not the picture of biblical headship. It's not the picture of what he's calling us to right here. It's not your favorite politician who you voted for. It's not your, your high school football coach or even your dad, whether that was done well or not done well. The picture of headship right here is Jesus Christ, the one who demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ moved towards us and he laid down his life for the flourishing of us all. It's Jesus in Matthew 20 when he says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. It's Jesus and, and John when he, when he actually gets on his hands and his feet and he washes, or hands on his knees, and he washes his disciples' feet. 
It's Jesus when he saw our sin and he chose to give fully of himself for the long-term flourishing of his bride church. That is the example that has been given to you husbands of what headship should look like. So here's my question, church. Why in the world is love supposed to be a woman thing? Why in the world when we talk about love today do we sit there and say, you know what, that's for the ladies. Every single conference I say that's a dramatic. Almost every conference I go to, you know what we talk about? We talk about leadership. We love talking about leadership. And it's awesome. There's a leadership implication in this passage. Why in the world are we not championing what it looks like to love? More, should I say. Why in the world are you not the, we, not the experts and talking about love, modeling what love looks like. This is the one command that is given to husbands more than anything else in this thing, saying, husbands, love your wives. How in the world do we have this idea that somehow love and the ideas of love, that's just for the ladies over there? Husbands, this is the command that has been passed on to us. Uh, how in the world, how in the world have we, have we shucked this responsibility and pushed it to the side? Church, I mean, you lead with love, you will be leading her well. If you lead with leadership, if you lead with provision, you lead with finances, or you lead with decision-making or the discipline of the children, it is not a given that you'll be able to love her well. That's what we're saying. Like you love her, you will lead her. If you lead her, it's not a given that you're going to love her. And it has to be first. You have to understand the, the, the responsibility that has been given to you right here. It's why you're not going to hear me major on leadership primarily, although it is implied in this text. But you lead with love, and you become you major in what it looks like to love. Love is not just a feeling. It is a thing that you do. You move towards her with intentionality, and there's a responsibility to steward this relationship well. And what I'm saying is if you will love her first, you will lead her well. There will be flourishing. There will be oneness in the context of this marriage over the long haul. And what I'm saying, church, like I can't tell you how many people, how many wives specifically are dying for this kind of headship and this kind of marriage that is actually described here in this text. Not the ways that you've seen it abused, not the ways that it has traditionally come out, not the natural ways that power is often used in different places, but the ways that Jesus models it to us right here. It is a friend who's come to us years ago in her desperation saying, I feel like a prisoner in my own home because I'm not allowed to disagree because the headship card is being played all the time. It's the friend that I talked to had asked, how long do I need to let an argument play out before I can finally make her submit? It's the woman who was not sleeping because her husband made her get a third job working through the night so that she could pay for his school. Meanwhile, he had no job, was staying up late at night with his friends playing Xbox all night long. It's the woman who had to give up all of her friends because their encouragement made her less passive at home. It's the wife who's desperate for her husband to initiate any kind of love, anything towards her in the context of this marriage, the passivity, the, one, the husband who's, who's neglected the responsibility, who's looked at this and just been like, you know what, I, there's, there's nothing given to me right here. And the wife that is saying, I'm desperate for my husband to recognize there is a responsibility in this thing to steward this thing well. And I'm dying for some initiation, initiative somewhere in my home. It's the friend who is told to submit to all kinds of horrific and painful acts at home while her husband is watching, you know what, next to her. It's the same woman who went to the elders, not here, 
but in another place, asking for help, and they told her, you just need to submit a little bit more to your husband and everything will be okay. Church Wake, we know how much this is abused. We know how sideways this gets because of the natural propensity, the curse of sin, which God in his infinite love for us has overcome in Jesus Christ. We know how often that plays out. And what Paul is saying is that is not the picture that he's giving to us and it is not, the, it, it is not how it has to be. There's definition to love. There's definition of what he's calling us to do. And so he says it right here. Love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy. It's the point. He laid down his life to make her holy, not to control, not to manipulate, not to always get his way, not to always name the restaurant that they get to go to, right? Not to make every decision where they move, always, 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 to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Church, like that's what love does. And so I just want to ask you a couple questions as you think about this a little bit. Like church, uh, husbands, let me ask you this. Is there a ministry of God's word in your home? Is there a ministry of God's word in your home? That's what he's saying. He's presenting, he's cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And it does not mean that you're going to be preaching sermons to each other or you're always going to be the teacher in every relationship or anything like that. Like, that'd be terrible. Like Kat and I would just be preaching to each other all day long at the home. Like, it would, probably wouldn't work out really well. We're not talking about that. Is there a ministry of God's word in your home? Talking with one husband, and and I'll just acknowledge, like, this could be a really, really weird thing. This is not saying, wives, you need to slow down so that your husband can pass you up and lead you well. Don't ever hear that. That is not what he's saying right here. What he's saying, like, talking with this one husband, he was kind of saying, okay, I came into faith. My wife is further, she understands some things. And so what does this look like to have a ministry of God's word in the home? And he came and he said, you know what? We just decided to say, hey, this time every day, it was right before bed, but this particular time, nothing else is going to go on. I'm going to have my Bible and I'm going to be reading it. You're going to have your Bible. You're going to be reading it. And we're going to come together and we're just going to talk. What is God showing you in the middle of this thing? Like that's, it's as simple as that. It's not teachers, preachers necessarily going at it in the home or anything like that. There's another one that's kind of, uh, I was talking with another one about specific application. How does this play out? How does the ministry of God's word uh, play out in your home? And uh, another one came and said, you know what, Um, I I go and I do my own reading, and I'll just text it to her throughout the day. Just say, you know what, I I love you, and I'm thinking about this, and I'll text it to you throughout the day. I know others whose spouses are disinterested, and so um, they do the same. It's more of a one-sided relationship here, and they're just kind of dripping things and saying, you know, I want to encourage you with the truth of God's word. There's a responsibility to, to have a ministry of God's word in your home. I came across these stats a while back, and it's from the perspectives uh, in family ministry, and I, I think they're absolutely, I think they say, they say a lot, and you can make stats say a lot of different things, but I want you to follow this. He says this, if a child or youth comes to Christ, there's only three and a half percent chance that the rest of the family will also come to faith. If a child or youth comes to faith, there's a three and a half percent probability that the rest of the family will also come to faith. If a mom comes to Christ, there's a 17 percent chance that the rest of the family will also come to faith. If a dad comes to Christ, there's a 93% chance that the rest of the family will follow. Imagine if those stats are off a little bit, right? Say they're off even 10, 15, 20%. What he's saying is that there's, for one reason or another, God has given a responsibility. And you have a voice in your home, fellas. You have a voice in your home. There's a responsibility to come in and to have a ministry of God's word among your family that sees them being cleansed, sees them growing up. And it doesn't mean that there's no voice, there's no leadership other places or anything like that. But it says, you know what, I'm going to take this responsibility and say, you know what, my family will understand the truth of God's word. 
in a number of different ways. Whatever that looks like in your dynamic right there, I'm gonna make sure that the word of God is saturating my family. And so fellas, families right here, people who are listening, like, is there a ministry of God's word in your home? Love is intentional. Love is intentional. He continues in verse 28, and he says, love your wife as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one's ever hated their own body. Like, no one's ever hated their own body, he says, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church. It's what Chip was talking about last week with empowering and feeding and strengthening his wife. And he saw a very vital role of his and a responsibility of his to look into the unique ways that God has shaped his spouse and the gifts that he's given to her and to recognize those things and bring them out in his wife and to set her free to do the things that God has called her to do. And it's going to look different in all kinds of homes. But he's, looking, he's saying, I'm going to feed her. I'm going to care for this body. And so I'm just going to ask you, is your wife fed? Is she empowered? Is she strengthened to go and to serve the Lord our God in the ways that God has called her to do? Is she cared for in a way that sees her flourishing? And can I just tell you, it brings me such incredible joy to look around our church body and to see so many women flourishing in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and doing exactly that, exactly what God has called you to do. Maybe it's in the home. Maybe it's in a unique environment over here. Maybe it's through service of the church. Maybe it's the, we were celebrating a couple book launches this past week. Kyle Martin obviously recognizing a gift in his wife, saying, go and write. Do the things God has called you to do. It's one of our highest values is to say, okay, what is the unique way God has wired this woman, my wife, my beautiful wife God has entrusted me with to go and to serve the kingdom of God in the ways that he is like, we come alongside and we feed and we strengthen and we encourage. And it is a responsibility that is modeled to us right here and given to us in this text to come and to see her flourish. And so I would just ask that church, like, is your wife, is your spouse flourishing? Is she empowered? Is she fed? Is she cared for? in a way that sees her doing the things that God has called her to do. So church, that's headship. It's a word and submission that you see tarnished all around the place. It's abused and it's neglected and it's, it's not used really, really well a lot of times. But God in his love gives us a picture of Jesus right here. He says, I'm not talking about all that other nonsense. I'm not talking about the abuse, I'm not talking about the neglect, I'm not talking about the wielding of power, I'm talking about as Christ loved us. When he came and he laid down his life. And the command given to you husbands is not leadership, although it is implied, it is love. It is an active, intentional love directed towards your spouse. And here it is, church, if you will lead with intentional love, and there's an attitude of mutual submission all around the room in the context of your marriage, two people coming together, moving towards Christ, giving fully of themselves for the flourishing of another, you will experience oneness and intimacy in your marriage. And you will know the joy of having a marriage that paints a picture of a God in heaven who gave up his own life for the long-term flourishing of his bride, the church. So I'll just tell you my hope and my prayer for us is that God would meet you wherever you may be. You could be a seasoned veteran in the marriage relationship, that God would breathe life into whatever stage you happen to find yourself in. I'll tell you, I think I've shared this before, but Kat and I are in the early days. I think we went to the same marriage conference almost probably five years in a row. Exact same marriage conference, exact same content, exact same format. And every single time, God met us in a different way. We were at a different stage. And he breathed life and new instruction and new hope and new joy to continue having us grow together in oneness for the longevity of our marriage.
My hope and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would breathe life into you today. That there may be tension at home. There may be difficulty. You may be on the backside of a disillusioned marriage and you may understand what it's supposed to be. Maybe there's opportunity in the future, whatever it may be, that God would breathe life into you, truth into you today, that marriages would be restored, the families would be renewed. Again, all for the praise and for the glory of his name. Father, we love you, God. And uh, we thank you that, again, you don't leave us in obscurity. You don't leave us in confusion. You don't leave us without examples, without having modeled what this sacrificial love looks like first. God, in the middle of hostility towards you, in the middle of sin, God, you moved towards us. You laid down your life for the flourishing of your bride. God, we say thank you, thank you, thank you. And Holy Spirit, would you come and would you meet someone today that's in the middle of a difficult marriage? I pray that you breathe life into them. God, that they would see what you have called them to do in the middle of this thing. Father, I also pray for a supernatural work that you would move in the other person as well. God, that they would have life, that they would have hope today, that they really would cling to you, that it would be two people in mutuality coming, looking at Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, running wholeheartedly after you and being unified in the process. God, would you bring that oneness to us today? Would you bring healing to somebody today who's on the back end of this? Would you bring purpose to someone who's not there and may want to be there? Father, would you bring renewal, Lord Jesus, all for your praise. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen and amen.